Now, while Dorian Hawkmoon and his companions sailed for Crimea's mountainous shore, the armies of the Dark Empire pressed in upon the little land of the Camargue, ordered by Huon, the King Emperor, to spare no life, energy, and inspiration in the effort to crush and utterly destroy those upstarts who dared resist Grand Bretagne. Across the silver bridge that spanned 30 miles of sea came the hordes of the Dark Empire. Pigs and wolves, vultures and dogs, mantises and frogs, with armour of strange design and weapons of bright metal. And in his throne globe, curled fetus-like in the fluid that preserved his immortality, King Huan burned with hatred for Hawkmoon, Count Brass, and the rest who, somehow, he could not contrive to manipulate as he manipulated the rest of the world. It was as if some counterforce aided them, perhaps manipulated them as he could not, and this thought the King Emperor could not tolerate. But much depended on those few beyond the power of King Huan's influence, those few free souls. Hawkmoon, Oladan, perhaps Deverk, the mysterious warrior in jet and gold, Yzelda, Count Brass, and a handful of others. For on these, the rune staff relied to work its own pattern of destiny. Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, Dave, aka Cernus, returns to Darien Toms to pick up book two of the second novel in the first Hawkmoon run, The Mad God's Amulet. It's been a good, runestaff blessed week here in Darien Toms. Before heading out on our jollies to Wales a couple of weeks ago, I ordered a fascinating album by Gates of Londra. It's a one-sided vinyl affair, courtesy of label Ertod Void in Germany. And on side B, there's a rather gorgeous screen print, and it's really quite a unique package. Gates of Londra is available on Bandcamp under the Ertod Void label, and I'll pop a link in the show notes. The blurb on the Bandcamp page reads thus. Gates of Londra is a musical project based on the work of fancy writer Michael Mocock, also known for his collaborations with Hawkwind, Blue Oyster Cult, and many more. Heroic industrial black metal with pounding rhythms and plaintive screams. A legend about the destroyed post-Europe and the rise of a hero, drawn by the sword. As most Mocock-inspired music tends to favour Elric, this makes a really nice change, and it's good, hard, raw and loud, and I thoroughly recommend it. It's also a really, really tidy-looking thing. I suppose the other exception to that Elric music tendency is, of course, the Black Corridor thanks to Imria and Decadnids, friends of the show, of course. And as it happens, the Black Corridor is the subject of our next episode, so more to come on that next time. And since we recorded this show, Dave has popped to the Dragon Isle to collaborate with Imria on the latest release of his iterative experimental electronic opus, The Dreaming City. I'll be talking about that a little bit on the next show too, with Derek, a.k.a. Imria. 
And our good bud Alistair Thompson, aka The Gateless Gate, is on there too, so please do check it out via the link in the show notes. In other news, we received a new review on Apple Podcasts from Quentin Ryder. It's titled, My Favourite Podcast, and it reads, What luck to stumble across a podcast about such an exciting and influential author. The host and recurring guests are always charming and funny, and they bring unique perspectives to each subject or story discussed. These warm and comforting voices have given me healthy company over long working weeks, and it's such a treat to find polite conversations being had, and about such a specific topic. As an additional note to the host, I'm 23 years old, so your podcast does have a rather wide reach. Cheers. What luck to have you stumble across us, Quentin, and thanks for those thoughts. Hugely appreciated. It's always lovely to get good reviews. Right, enough now of the preamble. The rune staff's business must be done. So sit back, polish your amulet of power, and join Dave and I in Derry and Tom's as we conclude our affairs with The Mad God's Amulet, Book Two. Welcome back to Derry and Tom's. I have with me once again Agent of the Rune Staff, Dave, aka Sonus Rocks on Bandcamp. Welcome back, Dave. Good to be here. Good to do the Rune Staff's will. You know, not like I have a choice in the matter, but you know, it's a benevolent ruler so far. It's been pretty okay. So, you know, here we are. Let's do it. Now, we had a pretty good time last time around talking with Clarky, and of course, we've talked to Ben Haberfield recently. And before that, we did Mad God's Amulet, book one, which was a good time. I enjoyed book one. What we didn't realize was that Mad God's Amulet books the trend of a three part Moorcock novel from the seventh, from the late 60s or early 70s. So book two ended up being a lot longer than I expected, probably about two thirds of the book. But you know what? We're here to do it. The rune staff will guide us. Maybe if everything goes wrong, the warrior in Jet and Gold will just turn up and spout exposition to get us through it. That's you know essentially what he does in this book quite frequently. <laughs> go but, Warrior in Jet and Gold. Yeah, I've got some thoughts about the Warrior in Jet and Gold as we go along, but we'll get into that. But Ooh. I suppose we should try and recap a little bit for listeners. What happened in book one? Well, let's see. So, you know, right off the top of my head, the first thing that comes to mind is a lot of getting into boats and getting out of boats, getting Lots back boats. into boats. A lot of boats, some of them on fire, some of them yep. with like crazy naked pirates with, you know, nothing but ball gags and in their mouth and like yep. weird, weird stuff, really weird, weird, weird stuff. Now, I don't know if I'm misremembering the ball gags, but there's definitely at least collars. There is some weird kinky stuff going on there. Yeah, <laughs> De- definitely a lot of S&M gimp pirates going on. Yeah, in yeah. Book one. a surprising amount. You know, I just wasn't wasn't it anticipating that necessarily. Uh, let's see. There were Judas Priest album cover, Metal Beasts in the Desert. That's right. Uh, there was a city of ghost people who had a machine that would take their city into another dimension. Yep. That becomes important. Uh, very important, as it turns out. So mm. keep that one in mind. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good recap, to be honest. Oladan and Hawkmoon are on the run in the desert. They come across a city, the name of which I forget, but they help them. The city helps them by sending them on a quest to get a mystical artifact which will help them effectively move their city into a different dimension to escape the Grand Britannians. And the giant Judas Priest album cover Metal Beast kills loads of Grand Britannians and they escape off into the desert with another of these strange artifacts, courtesy of Rhinal, 
who gifted it to them. And then they have some adventures, they hear about the Mad God, they hear that the Yzelda has been captured and the Camargue is under siege. Von Villac may be dead, the Count, Count Brass, may be dead. All sorts of strange tales and rumours. They end up in a seaport, they take ship, lots of ship action. They come under attack by S&M Gimp pirates who are all drugged up and they find Yzelda's ring on board, attached to a dismembered hand. So Hawkmoon, as is his wont, gets pretty antsy about things and pretty anxious and he thinks he must save Yzelda. And they finally have a big bash on a ship and they escape on a raft that miraculously came out of the bowels of their small ship with four horses fully tacked and ready to go. And this book begins with them essentially nearing some bleak crags because any fantasy book that starts with nearing some bleak crags always promises a good time. Oh, so yeah. that's where we are. They're after finding out who the Mad God is, why he's kidnapped his elder, and the need to save her. And it seems the book's called The Mad God's Amulet. That makes some kind of sense. I, I suggest that we kick off with a quick reading to set the scene. So, as per last time, if you're happy to voice Duke Dorian Hawkmoon of Colne, I shall voice William de Burke. All right, sounds good. Where are we okay. at? Okay. So, we're at chapter one, which in my hardcover omnibus edition is page 218. So, we're going to have a lot of fun with this because my page <laughs> count will be completely different to yours. Mine in the uh, Mayflower edition is page 66. Yeah. So, I really should have dug out the Mayflower edition to make this a lot easier for both <laughs> of us, but I failed to do so. So, we're just going to have to wing it. Okay, but let's go. So, chapter one. Let's set the scene. The Waiting Warrior. As they neared the bleak crags that marked the shore, Hawkmoon glanced curiously at Deverk, who had flung back his boar-masked helm and was staring out to sea, a slight smile on his lips. Deverk seemed to sense Hawkmoon's attention and glanced at him. You seem puzzled, Duke Dorian. Are you not a little pleased by the outcome of our plan? Aye, Hawkmoon nodded. But I wonder about you, Deverk. You join in this venture spontaneously, yet there is no gain in it for you. I'm sure you felt no great interest in bringing Shagarov his desserts, and you certainly do not share my desperation wanting to know Yazelda's fate. Also, you have not, to my knowledge, made any attempt to escape. Tovek's smile broadened a little. Why should I? You do not threaten my life. In fact, you saved my life. At this point, my fortunes seem linked close to yours than the Dark Empire's. But your loyalty is not to me and my cause. My loyalty, my dear Duke, as I have already explained, is to the cause most likely to further my own ambition. I must admit, I've changed my views about the hopelessness of your cause. You seem endowed with monstrous good luck. I am sometimes even inclined to think you might win against the Dark Empire. If that seems possible, I might well join you, and with great enthusiasm. You do not bide your time, perhaps, hoping to reverse our roles again and capture me for your masters? No denial would convince you, so I will not offer you one. The enigmatic answer set Hawkmoon to frowning again. As if to change the topic of conversation, Deverk suddenly doubled up with a coughing fit and lay down panting in the boat. So starting where he, starting where he left off, uh, Deverk with a nice ostentatious coughing fit. And there's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's, there, there's more wonderful Deverk complaining about the quality of the local air action further along. <laughs> but we now get the introduction of who you can only really describe as the Runestaff's version of Basil Exposition, 
the warrior <laughs> in jet and gold. And Oladan is looking up from the prow and he sees on a narrow strip of shingle that there's a horseman motionless looking towards them. And they get there and Harmer says, Did you know I would be here? It seemed that you might beach in this particular place. So I waited. I see. Hawkmoon looked up at him, uncertain what to do or say next. I see. <laughs> you know this gentleman, Deverk asked lightly. An old acquaintance. You are Willem Deverk, said the warrior in Jan Gold sonorously. I see you still wear the garb of Grand Breton. It suits my taste, Deverk replied. I did not hear you introduce yourself. The warrior in Jet and Gold ignored Deverk, raising a heavy gauntlet hand to point at Hawkmoon. This is the one I must speak with. You seek your betrothed, Yzelda, Duke Dorian, and you quest for the Mad God. Is Yzelda prisoner of the Mad God? In a manner of speaking, yes, but you must seek the Mad God for another reason. Yzelda lives? Does she live? She lives, but you must destroy the Mad God before she can be yours again. You must destroy the Mad God and rip the Red Amulet from his throat, for the Red Amulet is rightfully yours. Two things the Mad God has stolen, and both those things are yours, the girl and the amulet. Yzelda's mine, certainly, but I know of no amulet. I've never owned one. This is the Red Amulet, and it is yours. The Mad God has no right to wear it, and thus it turned him mad. Hawkmoon smiled. If that is the Red Amulet's property, then the Mad God is welcome to it. This is not a matter for honour, Duke Dorian. The Red Amulet has turned the Mad God mad because he stole it from a servant of the Runestaff. But if the Runestaff's servant wears the Red Amulet, then he is able to derive great power transmitted from the Runestaff through the Amulet. Only a wrongful wearer is turned mad. Only the rightful wearer may regain it once another wears it. Therefore, I could not take it from him, nor could any man save Dorian Hawkmoon von Kolm, servant of the Runestaff. Again you call me servant of the Runestaff, yet I know of no duties I must perform. Do not even know if this is all a fabric of imaginings and you are some madman yourself. Think what you wish. However, there is no doubt, is there, that you seek the Mad God, that you desire nothing greater than to find him. To find Gazelda, his prisoner. If you like. Well then, I need not convince you of your mission. There has been a strange series of coincidences since I embarked on the journey from Hamadan. Barely credible. There are no coincidences where the runestaff is concerned. Sometimes the pattern is noticed, sometimes it is not. The warrior in Jettingal turned in his saddle and pointed to a winding path cut into the cliffside. We can ascend there, camp and rest above. In the morning we shall begin the journey to the Mad God's castle. You know where it lies? Hawkmoon asked eagerly, forgetting his other doubts. Aye. Then another thought occurred to Hawkmoon. You do not engineer Yzelda's capture to force me to seek the Mad God. Yzelda was captured by a traitor in her father's army, Juan Zinaga, who planned to take her to Grand Bretagne. But he was diverted on the way by warriors of the Dark Empire who wished to claim the credit for kidnapping her. While they fought, Yzelda escaped and fled, joining at length a refugee caravan through Italia, managing to get passage some time later on a ship sailing the Adriatic Sea, bound, she was told, ultimately for Provence. But the ship was a slaver, running gales to Arabia, and in the Gulf of Sidra was attacked by a pirate vessel from Carpathos. It is a story hard to believe. What then? Then, 
the Carpathians decided to ransom her, not knowing that the Camargue was under siege, but learning only later of the impossibility of getting money from that quarter. They decided to take her to Istanbul to sell her, but arrived to find the harbour full of Dark Empire ships. Fearing these, they sailed on into the Black Sea, where the ship was attacked by the one you have just burned. I know the rest. That hand I found must have belonged to a pirate who stole the Azelda's ring, but it is a wild tale warrior who barely has the sound of truth. Coincidence? I told you, there are no coincidences where the rune stuff is involved. Sometimes the pattern seems simpler than at other times. Hawkmoon sighed. She is unharmed? Relatively. What do you mean? Wait until you come to the Mad God's castle. And at that point, the warrior and Jettle girl just clams up and will not say any more or answer any more questions. And we've got to say that the warrior and Jet and Gold at this point is just the most enormous plot device. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like for, the, for the entirety of book one, Hawkmoon is like, oh no, what's happening to your Zelda? You get to the end of book one, book two, within two pages, the warrior and Jet and Gold has told them everything and the mystery is completely dispelled. Oh yeah. And, it's, and so Hawkmoon's right, all oh, right, okay, cool, Mad God, she's sure. all right, sort of. Something about a really powerful amulet. Ah, That probably won't pay off later. Who knows? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Not interested. Sorry. That thing we've discussed before about Murkoch characters, their level of agency. Once again, Mm. we're getting that reinforced here. They've landed on a shore. The ship's just burned. Instantly, they have a guide who gives them a lot of exposition, explains 50% of the plot in a couple of paragraphs of dialogue. Good dialogue. But explains the yeah. plot in a couple of paragraphs of dialogue, whilst Averk and Oladan are probably, I don't know, picking their teeth or whatever, <laughs> or just doing something else and not listening. Shifting their toes, just drawing <laughs> yeah, stuff in the dirt. Right. Like, when are we right. going to go yeah. up the crags, man? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And there's a little bit of that coming up as well, where you just think, well, <laughs> where did Oladan and Averk get to whilst Hawkmoon and the Warrior and Jet and Gold are, are having this, you know, encounter yeah. and this exchange, this back but, and forth? <laughs> it's 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 kind of wonderful. So the Warrior and Jet and Gold is this um, glib, towering exposition machine. And when I was reading it, I was kind of reminded, it's like you can either do these things through discovery and subtext or you can just lay it out like this yep. in exposition. <laughs> and, and, and you know I'm, what? When you got a 141-page book, you might as well. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is what makes them such a, a barnstorming, barnstorming page-turner, mm-hmm. I suppose. Fast-paced, propulsive fiction needs this. You need some big expedition dumps. Expedition. Yeah, pretty much. Exposition. But but I was thinking when I was reading it of um, of the Garth Marenghi quote from the interview on the, uh, on the Garth Marenghi's <laughs> Dark Place DVD where he says, I know authors have used subtext and they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> I love that joke. Yeah. You hear the books coming out later. Yeah, um, and he's doing a, a narrated version, an audiobook version as oh, well. Oh, well, I know which one I'm going to get then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. Yeah, I've, um, I've pre-ordered a, a signed copy from Forbidden Planet, so I'm quite excited about oh, that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, ultimately, the Warrior and Jet and Gold, or Twijag, if you don't want to continue to say it, Oh, um, God. Consistently. Um, knows that Hawkman's seeking his elder. He knows loads. He knows his elder's okay. He knows that the Mad God has an amulet, so the novel title isn't just a clever name, and it must be had by Hawkmoon. And Hawkmoon's, yeah, all right, whatever. Amulet. Where's his elder? And 
turns out that Warrior and Jet and Gold not only knows that, you know, she's okay, next day he actually tells them how to get there after they've had a kip. And he points the way and he says uh, they have to go over the throbbing bridge. Oh, my. And travel a few days into Ukraine. The throbbing bridge. Throbbing bridge. Mm. Mm. Seems a little structurally unsound to me, but it seems to uh, be okay. Yeah, the throbbing bridge actually seems quite uh, <laughs> an interesting bridge. Sounds so, like a prog rock album. Yeah. yeah. And, and we get a little bit of Hawkmoon musing on the Warrior and Jet and Gold. And I, that, I found this quite amusing, actually, because Hawkmoon as a character is, in many ways, a simple fighting man. And uh, and I did enjoy his musing. It says, Hawkmoon lay in his tent looking out at the silhouette of the Warrior and Jet and Gold, wondering if the creature were in any way human, wondering if his interest in Hawkmoon was ultimately friendly or malign. He sighed. He wanted only to find his elder, save her and take her back to the Camargue, there to satisfy himself that the province still stood against the Dark Empire. But his life was complicated by this strange mystery of the Runestaff, and some destiny he must work out that fitted with the Runestaff's scheme. Yet the Runestaff was a thing, not an intelligence. Or was it an intelligence? It was the greatest power one could call upon when earth-making. It was believed to control all human history. Why then, he wondered, should it need servants if, in effect, all men served it? But perhaps not all men did. Perhaps there emerged forces from time to time, like the Dark Empire, that were opposed to the Roomstaff's scheme for human destiny. Then, perhaps, the Roomstaff needed servants. Hotman became confused. <laughs> His was not the head for profundity of that sort, nor speculative philosophy. Not much later, he fell asleep. So, yeah, <laughs> I feel for him there. That's some tough thinking that, that would make a man very tired. Oh, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Definitely mulling over the nature yeah. of gods and religions and all kinds of things like that. But this rune staff, quite mysterious. Mm. Chapter two. And they ride for a couple of days and then they come across this throbbing bridge. And this is classic Mokok travelogue, isn't it? Yeah. And there's much. that sequence. Mention something interesting sounding, encounter it, bit of throwaway world building, bit of colour, done, move on. That's Done it. and dusted in less than a page. Yep. And this throbbing bridge is a perfect encounter. And the, the warrior describes it as an ancient artifact wrought by forgotten signs and a forgotten race who sprang up sometime between the fall of the death reign and the rise of the princedoms. So it's another little bit of that lovely hints of the history of, of, of this version of Europe. The fall yeah. of the death reign. You know, and it's it's not a fucking victorian suspension bridge or something like that it's a weird throbbing bridge of beams of light that goes wab 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 and when they walk <laughs> across it when they walk across it it's really weird and it's psychedelic and there are crazy lights all over the place and when they get to the other side the kind of high <laughs> it's brilliant it's yeah, brilliant i feel like they've rested for days yeah it's uh, like restorative as well as a mode of getting from A to B. It's brilliant. If any yeah. if any advanced future civilization were to improve bridges, that would be it, wouldn't it? That'd be amazing. I wish the Bay Bridge was like that, because crossing that thing, I just feel like all the energy sucked out as I sit there in traffic <laughs> for God knows how long, paying the yeah. crazy tolls over here. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to throb more. Yeah, it needs to throb more like a living organ, and you know, some psychedelic colors would be cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I remember, want. <laughs> I remember seeing Mocock described, and I think it might have been on a book cover, or it might have been someone like Angus Wilson, uh, one of these little kind of capsule paragraph reviews that you get sometimes on the inner leaf of a Mocock book. And someone described him as restlessly inventive. And I think that's a really good description because he just throws this stuff away for free. And there's yeah, no really. elaboration. It's just could have been a whole book in and of itself. Yeah, it's just it's just there, and you just move on, and you don't find anything else about it. It's just a little piece of of location detail, and it's it's kind of fabulous. So once they cross the Throbbing Bridge, they encounter some warriors traveling at pace, and they call to them and ask why they're off somewhere in such a hurry, and they do answer and say that the forces of Grand Britain are about, and it's not long before they see some of their handiwork. And it says, within half an hour, they saw smoke in the distance. It was thick, oily smoke that crept close to the ground, and it stank. Hawkmoon knew what the smoke signified, but said nothing until, later, they came to the town that was burning and saw, piled in the square, a huge pyramid of corpses, every one naked, men, women, children, and animals, heaped indiscriminately upon one another and burning. It was this pyre of flesh that gave off the evil-smelling smoke, and there was only one race Hawkmoon knew of who could indulge in an act such as this. The riders had been right. Dark Empire soldiers were nearby. There were signs that a whole battalion of troops had taken the town and raised it. Oladan's completely shocked by this because he's not kind of seen this at first hand, but it gives Deverk and Hawkmoon an opportunity to muse on the nature of the Grand Britannians. And it's interesting, when, when you're reading this, because it's split into book one and book two, you get these reinforcements of plot points from the books as if this could have been like published into instalments in magazines or something. Already we're getting that reinforcement. The Grand Britannians are wrong-uns, like spectacular wrong-uns. So within oh, yeah. only five pages of book two starting, we've got our usual reminders, our usual examples. We've got a recap of the plot. We've got the warrior and jet and gold has basically told everybody what's going on. And we've got our reinforcement that the Grand Britannians are truly vile, awful, fascist murderers. And we've got it right there. They do move on because, of course, they are seeking the Mad God's Castle. And next morning, there's more grimness as they reach the Mad God's Castle. Well, that was quick. <laughs> yeah, this is what I was thinking when I was reading it. I was thinking, oh, Mad God's Amulet, you know, there's going to be three or four chapters of travelogue as they fight their way to the Mad God's Castle, but actually they get to the Mad God's Castle really fucking quickly because the warrior and jet and gold has got it all in hand. And he was right, cross the throbbing bridge, travel for a bit, and there it is. And they find the Mad God's Castle leaning above a lake and a fisherman's village. But, as again, there is death everywhere. It's all over the place. Everybody's dead. Well, almost everybody's dead. We'll find out shortly that not everybody's dead. Most of them appear to be cultists, and there are some other bodies lying around, so they're a little bit confused by this. There's not a whole lot of action in terms of defence of this castle. And then they get attacked. So, they came running between the houses. Swords and axes raised. They were dressed in breastplates and kilts of leather, and a ferocious light burned in their eyes. Their lips were drawn back in bestial snarls. Their white teeth gleamed, and foam flecked their mouths. But this was not what astonished Hawkmoon and his companions. It was their sex that caught them by surprise. For all the maniacally shrieking warriors rushing at them were women of incredible beauty. I found this a really strange swing. And you do get this. You do get this in Mocock novels, don't you? Super pulpy. Yeah. You swing from the pyramid of corpses, 
Yep. And the the just kind of how awful a picture of human destruction that is. To them coming under attack by a rabid posse of hot babes. Yeah. And just like Wonder Woman. Yeah. And after Hawkman's realised that none of them are Yiselda, he hatches a plan and I've got to say, it's pretty lame. <laughs> it's a it, pretty it, lame passage, this. Yeah, it kind of is. Because how do, how do they conquer the maniacal hot babes? Well, they just, you know, catch them up like a bunch of fish in some nets, and then they just go about systematically knocking each one out. Boom, boom, boom. Because, yeah, know, they don't want to kill them. Very good and heroic because you know that would be that'd be messed up. But uh, yeah, I just I just I just think of like the uh, the the opening scene of uh, Conan the Destroyer when mm. like the horsemen are coming with the nets and it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it's 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 so odd. It's like these hot cultist warrior women have butchered all of the Mad God's cult and left axes in their heads. Yep. But but when they attack like the three virile heroes of this story, all they do is defend and then throw fishing nets on them and bonk them on the head. And there's, yeah. no per- there's no peril. <laughs> yeah. It's like, these women, just defend yourselves, then we'll, we'll, we'll trap them all in this net. And, it, and it, it feels like it's like Batman and Robin dealing with some... Where do they get the net? <laughs> just lying it's, around. It's a fisherman's village. Oh, there so, you go. <laughs> so, okay, fair enough. They've got fishermen's nets lying around. <laughs> but it's it's like, we've just had the Throbbing Bridge. We've just arrived yeah. here. And then another idea, that of warrior women, kind of rushes in from left field and they deal with it in two paragraphs and then move yeah. on. Boom, now, of, now, of course, we do get a slight return to the, uh, to the maniacal warrior women. But, yeah, the way in which they deal with them without even a cut, it's, yeah... Um, that was just too easy and just a little bit, a little bit daft. And I think it's uh, Jay Barman always says it's tonally all over the place. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, and <laughs> it this, really is. This book is already in the space of a couple of pages tonally all over the place. And it's yep. like you know, hot babes should just stick to hot babing because you know if they're going to attack Hawkmoon and Co, they're just going to get caught in a net and bonked on the head. So. <laughs> Could have done more with it, perhaps, but that's Michael Moorcock at this stage, isn't it? He's he's knocking these books out in three days, and at this stage, he's probably speeding his tits off on day two. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I mean, really. I mean, the fact that he just went straight book one, okay, done. Book two, we're just gonna finish this sucker, write it all through. Okay, hmm. how are we gonna show what happens uh, to Yazelda here in a few pages? Well, we'll just have him attacked by a bunch of hot, crazy warrior yeah. women. Yeah. <laughs> but then. Because Moorcock is Moorcock, there is a couple of paragraphs at the end that are just so nicely constructed, and again, it's simple language, and I'm back on board with it again, and it says, Within the castle, all was quiet. A little mist curled about its towers. The drawbridge was down, and on it lay the corpses of the guards. Somewhere, from the tops of one of the highest towers, a raven squawked and flapped away over the water of the lake. No sun shone through those grey clouds. It was as if no sun had ever shone there, as if no sun would ever shine. It was as if they had left the world for some other plane where hopelessness and death prevailed throughout eternity. The dark entrance to the castle courtyard gaped at Hawkmoon. The mist formed grotesque shapes, and there was an oppressive silence everywhere. Hawkmoon took a deep breath of the chill damp air, drew his blade, kicked at the flanks of his horse and charged across the drawbridge, leaping the corpses to enter the Mad God's lair. And instantly, Beautiful. instantly I'm back in the game. Yeah. You know, you know it's weird. I, I, I've... 
I've read that you know Morcock's not really a huge uh, huge on like horror, but like I he totally could. He's just such a such evocative, so great at setting these mm. moods and just choosing the words and describing it this way. Which yeah, I mean after even after something is you know kind of silly as like these warrior women getting caught in a giant net and just you know knocked out one by one. Um, you, 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 then you get to read something like that and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. I, I buy it. I'm back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just so simple, but so evocative. It's great. Yeah. In the castle, again, clogged with dead bodies. Obviously, all the action happened before they got here, which is handy because they can basically cut to the chase. And the warrior in Jet and Gold is still saying, you know what? You've got to get this, this amulet. All Hawkman's worried about is checking the dead, see if she's here. He realises she isn't, and very quickly they come across a strange figure in a suspended cage. And essentially, they find the Mad God pretty much straight away. There's no real adventure to find him. There he is, this weirdo in a cage, suspended from the ceiling. And it says, he reached the cage and could see the huddled figure only dimly, for the light was poor. Who are you? Hawkmoon asked. A prisoner of the Mad God? The moaning ceased and the figure stirred. From it then came a deep, echoing, melancholy voice. Aye, you could say so, the unhappiest prisoner of all. Now Hawkman could make out the creature better. It had a long, stringy neck, and its body was tall and very thin. Its head was covered in long, straggling grey hair that was matted with filth, and it had a pointed beard, also filthy, that jutted from its chin for about a foot. Its nose was large and aquiline, and its deep-set eyes held the light of a melancholy madness. Can I save you? Hawkmoon said. Can I prize apart the bars? The door of the cage is not locked. Bars are not my prison. I have been trapped within my groaning skull. Ah, pity me. Who are you? I was once known as Stalnikov, of the great family of Stalnikov. Then the mad god usurped you. Aye, usurped me. Aye, exactly. Who are you? I am Dorian Hawkmoon, Duke of Cone. A German? Cone was once part of a country called Germania. I have a fear of Germans. You need not fear me. No? <laughs> no? He reached around into his jerkin and pulled something forth that was attached to a thong about his neck. The thing glowed within a deep red light, like a huge ruby, illuminated from within, and Hawkmoon saw it bore the sign of the room staff. No, then you are not the German who has come to steal my power? The red amulet. How did you obtain it? Why, I obtained it thirty years ago from the corpse of a warrior my retainer set upon and slew as he rode this way. This is the Mad God. This is the source of my madness and my power. This is what imprisons me. You are the Mad God. Where is my Yazelda? Yazelda? The girl? Ah, the new girl, with the blonde hair and the white, soft skin. Why do you ask? She is mine. You do not want the amulet? I want your Zelda. <laughs> then you shall have her, German. He clapped his claw-like hands, his whole body moving like a loose-limbed puppet's, the cage swinging wildly. Yazelda, my girl, Yazelda, come forth to serve your master. And it turns out Yazelda, she's also clad in weird S&M gear. <laughs> so, yep. She's clad in weird S&M gear. She comes out and, with a wild animal shriek, She throws herself at Hawkmoon to attack. Once again, the Mad God appears completely obsessed with just having hot babes in 
S&M gear or Wonder Woman gear being extraordinarily violent. Kind of interesting, too, because, I mean, obviously, you know, you have Hawkmoon this whole time saying, Zelda's mine, it's a thing, you know, and she's yeah. referred to as belonging to him. Yeah. And then you have these women also that are, you know, being made to serve this mad god and stuff like that. And I'm wondering, is this is this before, is this after Moorcock starting to get into feminism and stuff like that? Is he making a statement with this, or is this, mm. you know, before he's even thinking about that? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because it is extraordinarily yeah. pulpy. And yeah. when you th when you think back to the pulps like the Robert E. Howard and stuff like that, warrior women and ownership of Sling women. Sling her over my shoulder, carry her away. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and actually insane, spiky toothed warrior women running out of a jungle to attack Conan is is very much a thing in those mm. kind of stories. And so this is in many ways, this is a, a pulp staple. Yeah. But the battle over ownership and Hawkmoon's actual language. Hawkmoon himself is a bit of a lunk. And we found that in the first, <laughs> in Jewel of the Skull, when he actually starts to fall in love with Yzelda. It all happens so quickly. And it was the yeah. same with same with Erikos and, and oh, his yeah. relationship with uh, Cimmeril and the, uh, the daughter of King Ragnar. Oh, a babe. And she's looking at me. Therefore, we're in love, and we must get married. <laughs> and and there's there's a little bit of that with Hawkmoon as well. Yeah. He went to Castle Brass. She nursed him a little bit. She was nice to him in a rose garden. Therefore, they are in love and betrothed, and they must be married. I think if Mocock was in his feminist phase, I think Yazelda might have a little bit more to do or say because she's pretty two dimensional. Yeah, you know. But anyway, he's still trying to fight off Yzelda in her S&M gear. He avoids her and gets in the cage, and, and the Mad God tries his amulet trick on Hawkmoon, but of course, it doesn't work. There's a really funny bit where Hawkmoon's asking the warrior in Jet and Gold for help, and the warrior's all, no, nope, can't intervene. This is agent of the rune staff business. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to stand here with my broadsword in my hands with a tip pointed down, resting on the flagstones, and I'm just going to watch. Sorry? Cannot intervene. There's yep. also a great throwaway line where the, the mad guy chuckled, grasping the bars of his cage and looking on eagerly, slay him, my chicken, rip his throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, it is kind of fabulous. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. The Warren Jet and Gold is just, just, just watching this going on. You know, not not intervening at all. Just, just, just nope. watching. But no, nope, yeah. can't get involved. So all, all he does is talk. He's just a great talker, although he does get a bit of action before long. But he's, he's a great talker. At this time, again, no sign of Oladan or Willem de Verk. They've gone fishing or, or guarding the babes in the nets or whatever they're doing. They're nowhere to be seen. And the Mad God realises the game is up and frees his elder from the spell and says, you're free, or whatever he says, and then runs off to hide in a cranny. And you don't often see Nook or Cranny in... <laughs> In a uh, in a story, but he, yeah, he runs off to hide in a cranny, and you know he's a, he's a bit upset. And all he wanted, he admits, is he wanted to rule the world with an army of babes. Relatable, really. <laughs> <laughs> kind of relatable, you know. To to any teenage reader, they're probably going to identify with the Mad God at this point. It's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. More like the Rad God, dude. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you could say, well, you know, decent intentions, poor execution, perhaps. Yeah. Hawkmoon checks on Yzelda. She's a bit confused without any real surprise. Warrior and Jet and Gold is like, just get the amulet for fuck's sake. Hawkmoon, bit miffed. He does find Stalnikov in a corner 
Stalnikov doesn't really plead for his life. He knows that the game is up. He just sticks his sword in his chest, puts him out of his misery, but he leaves the amulet behind. He still doesn't want it. Still don't want any piece of it, because he thinks if it drove this dude mad over the course of 30 years, why on earth would she... Sorry, why on earth would he want to wear this amulet? Chapter 4. Hawkman comforts his elder, and she fills him in on the situation at the Camargue, so a bit more exposition. Poor Von Villach, dead. Fell to a flame lance. That's a shame. I like Von Villach. Yeah, I like Von Villach. It was was good. Count Brass is injured. That's all we know. And uh, Oladan and Verk finally turn up, wherever the fuck they've been. Uh, But with bad news, Grand Britannian troops have arrived, and the warrior in Jet and Gold once again tries to convince Hawkmoon to take the amulet. From the shadows, the warrior in Jet and Gold re-emerged. In one gloved hand, the red amulet dangled from its cord. The cord was stained with blood. The warrior handled it gingerly, not touching the stone itself, and stretched it out towards Hawkmoon as Deverk and Oladan hurried to swing the door shut and bar it. Here, it is yours. I do not want it. Will not have it. It is an evil thing. It has caused many to die, others to go mad. Even that poor creature Stalnikov was his victim. Keep it. Find another fool enough to wear it. You must wear it. Only you may wear it. I will not. That thing drove this gentle girl to become a slavering, killing beast. All those we saw in the Fisher Folk's village, all slain by the power of the Red Amulet. All those who came against us turned insane by its power. All those who died in the courtyard destroyed by the Red Amulet. I will not take it. If that is what the rune staff creates, I will have no part of it. It is what men... Fools like yourself do with it that makes it corrupt in its influence. It is your duty, as the Runestaff's chosen servant, to take the gift. It will not harm you. It will bring you nothing but power. Power to destroy and turn men mad. Power to do good. Power to fight the hordes of the Dark Empire. Hawkman sneered. There came a great crash on the door, and he knew that the warriors of Grambatan had found them. We're outnumbered. Will the Red Amulet give us the power to escape them when there is only one way out through yonder door? It will help you, said the warrior in Jengold, leaning down to retrieve the fallen amulet, again picking it up by its string. The door creaked under the pressure of the blows from those on the other side. The Red Amulet can do so much good. Why do you not touch it yourself? It is not mine to touch. It could do to me what it did to the miserable Stalnikov. Here, take it. It is why you came here. It is because of Yeselda I came here to rescue her. I have done that. It is why she came here. So it was a trick to lure me. No, it was part of the pattern. But you say you came to save her, yet you refuse the means of escaping with her safely from this castle. Once those warriors break in, a score or more of fierce fighters, they will destroy you all, and Yeselda's fate might be worse than yours. Now the door was splitting. Oladan and Deverk backed away, swords ready a look of quiet desperation in their eyes. Another moment and they'll be in here, said Deverk. Farewell, Oladan, and you too, Hawkmoon. You are less boring companions than some. I do not know. Trust my word, said the warrior in Jet and Gold. I have served you in the past. Would I have done so merely to destroy you now? Destroy me? No. But this will put me in some evil power. How do I know you are a messenger for the rune staff? I have only your word and that I serve it and not some darker cause. The door is breaking down, Oladan yelled. Duke Dorian, we'll need your aid. Let the warrior escape with Yzelda if he can. 
"'Quick,' said the warrior, extending the amulet again to Hawkmoon. "'Take it, and save the maid, at least.' And then he's convinced, and he takes it. He takes the amulet, and it settles in his hand. And, would you know it, it's <laughs> fucking <laughs> ace. Yeah. Superpowers. Yeah. Activated. So, they argue the toss a little bit, and then he relents, because a ton of tiger mask troops kick the door in, and it's fight time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Chapter 5, The Slaughter in the Hall. And that first line by Hawkmoon in Chapter 5, Say the Line. Oh, by the rune staff, the power in me. Yes. It's a classic Mokok heroes, eternal champions, MacGuffin, powerful. What would they call it in a game? A buff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mega buff. And oh, yeah. we get a wonderful chapter of out-and-out out slaughter. It's glorious. It's bloody. Limbs fly. Brains ooze through shattered helms. The warrior in Jet and Gold actually gets stuck in does something useful, and then we finally get a comeback from the army of babes, because they fight their way outside after slaughtering about 25 Grand Britannian tiger troops in the hall, fight their way outside. The Grand Britannians are just a little bit unsettled by the fact that these four blokes have come out and their, their comrades didn't. Deverk tries his charming command approach on them, fails his role, they don't go for it, fight on, and then all of a sudden, from back at the village, a horde of shrieking women descend upon the Grand Britannians. And, because it's more appropriate on this occasion, they're all of a sudden really hard again, and the Grand Britannians certainly don't succeed in throwing nets on them and knocking them out with pommels. And the oh, women fall upon the them. Nets. Yeah. <laughs> the women fall upon them and butcher them, and they get stuck in on Hawkmoon's behalf because he wields the amulet, as the warrior in Jane Gold points out. Yeah, good chapter that. Lots of great Moorcock fight action. Lots of nice details like grey rain falling as they fight and all that business. Really, really good. But gets better because oh, chapter yeah. six, The Mad God's Beasts. Oh, we've got another heavy metal album cover. Absolutely. The Warren Jet and Gold suggests that they leg it whilst the women are butchering the last of the Grand Britannians using The Mad God's Beasts. And The Mad God's Beasts turn out to be massive battle cats, which is kind of cool. And Hawkmoon's certainly not convinced. I've grown suspicious of all since I first encountered the Dark Empire. I do not know if you have anything to gain or not. However, he walked toward the nearest stall and laid his hands on the heavy wooden bar. I'm tired of bickering and will test your assurances. As he flung off the bar, the stable door was swept back from within by a giant paw. Then a head emerged, larger than an oxen's, fiercer than a tiger's, a snarling cat's head with slanting yellow eyes and long yellow fangs. As it padded out, a deep growling sound coming from its belly, its glaring eyes regarding them calculatingly, they saw that its back was lined with a row of foot-high spines of the same color and appearance as its fangs, running down to the base of its tail, which, unlike that of an ordinary cat, was tipped with barbs. A legend come to life, gasped Averk, losing his detached manner for a moment. One of the mutant war jaguars, Averge Communista. <laughs> Oh, yes. yes. One of the mutant war jaguars of Asia Communista. That is an instant call for a battle of the bands. Oh, my we, God. There's a guitar solo in my head right now. Yeah, we and need a new wave of British heavy metal battle of yes. the bands between the mutant war jaguars of Asia Communista versus the Tigers of Pantang on oh the main God. stage. 
We need it. <laughs> and we need some of the metal beast from book one will just be there, just headbanging, <laughs> yeah. thrashing around yeah. wildly. It's wonderful. And he goes on to say, an old beastie I saw pictured them, said that if they had existed at all, then it was a thousand years ago, because they were the products of some perverted biological experiment. They could not breed. So they cannot, said the warrior on Jet Gold, but their lifespan is all but infinite. The huge head now swung towards Hawkmoon, and the barbed tail swished back and forth, the eyes fixing on the amulet at the Hawkmoon's throat. And so he finds that he can actually control these because he's got the amulet, which is kind of cool. But he also realises that he's left his saddlebags on his horse, which is outside where the Grand Britannians are. And he says, I'm going to go and get them. And the Warren Jengel says, no, if you go and the amulet's not here these massive war beasts will tear everybody apart, so I'll go. And off he goes, the warrior jet and gold goes to get the saddlebags, because of course, what's in the saddlebags? It's the Grand MacGuffin from the Vanishing City, That's given to right. them by Rinal. So, uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking, why is this so fucking obsessed with his saddlebags? And I thought, oh yeah, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get MacGuffin after MacGuffin, don't you? But the Grand MacGuffin from book one is the machine that, that similar to what made that city disappear. It was, it's um, weasels. We've had tigers. Now it's weasels. Order of the weasel starts to come down the ramp into the area. So they strap four of these massive battle cats to an enormous chariot and head out, terrifying these weasels, tearing them apart on the way through with claw and fang. And they get out and he, he sees his horse on the way out without the saddlebags. So at this point, Dave... You're Hawkmoon. At this point, yeah. the warrior in Jet and Gold seems like quite a a decent dude, if a little bit, you know, choosy about when he gets involved. Uh-huh. Because he did get involved in the fighting with the Grand Britannians. But what do you think at this point? Are you, well, are you with Hawkmoon? If, if, if it were me there, I'd be like, huh, well, this guy who's always showed up to help seems like he would have gotten away with the saddlebags. Cool. Let's just escape. And I'm sure that we will encounter him later because he's always coming around to help. But, you know, Hawkmoon's just been through some shit. He's got some real bad trust issues. So instead of thinking that, he thinks, ah, he's stolen it. I've been betrayed yet again. What a fool I am. And so then he sets about escaping, thrashing the beasts like crazy. The chariot's going so fast that everybody else is like, holy shit, slow down. We're getting bruises on our asses here from this fucking, you know, shaking as these mutant jaguars of asia communista are yeah. fucking tearing down the road and uh hawk moon is just uh really really pissed off yeah um, he, he describes it as perfidy he is enraged at the perfidy of the uh the warrior jet and gold he's a bit of a burke hawk moon i know he's traumatized but he has serious trust issues yeah um so yeah he's he's not happy with the warrior jet and gold he thinks that he's betrayed them and he's run off with the thing that could potentially save the Camargue. Everyone else, not so much. Yzelda tries to talk some kind of sense into him, and they eventually camp. We get some we get some nice character beats once they've camped, once they've slowed down. Yeah. Um, Oladan crafts himself a bow, goes hunting, gets a couple of deer, quarters one, throws it to the battle cats. They're happy. And then Deverk coughs and complains about the air, the quality of the air, whilst eating his own body weight in roast deer. Yzelda shivers as she only has a cloak on, and then they realise that they need a plan. But Oladan, being a resourceful chap, whilst they were finishing off the tiger order in the castle, took his dagger to the helmets and took 
jeweled eyes from the helmets. So if they can just find a town, they've got some loot. And at this point, Oladan proves that he's a stout companion, actually, because he's been trailing along and he's been joining in the fight, but at this point, the camped, he's the one who provides, he's the one who goes out, gets food, cooks it, he's the one who sorted out the jewels. And actually, Oladan proves his worth here, whilst Deverk sits, eats, coughs, complains, and Heartmoon just broods over the perfidy of the warrior in Jet and Gold. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's but it's a really nice really nice scene that it's like a little bit of a pause in the action while they sit around and they eat. Yzelda basically has only got a cloak, so they need to get some clothes for the Yzelda. The fact that none of them actually just offer their shirt or something is you know could have maybe done that. And then there's a bit more action. They get chased by some of the Order of the Walrus. Uh, first appearance of the Order of the Walrus, and they chase them for what seems like a day or two until Hartman just gets pissed off. The chariot can't go any further because of the rough terrain, so it just sets the battle cat on them, and uh, they all get brutally murdered and eaten by the battle cats, who sadly we don't see again. You know, there are four massive mutant war jaguars of Asia Communista now just roaming the roaming the hillsides. Own the land. I'm sure that Fisher Village, they'll recover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, good luck to them. They came in useful. They were awesome, and they were very, very metal. Oh yeah. By the next day, they cross the mountains and come to a green valley with a little red town that was very peaceful. And it says, Deverk looked down at the town and held out his hand to Oladan. The jewels, if you please, friend Oladan. By the rune staff, I feel naked in just shirt and breeches. He took the jewels, tossed them in his palm, winked at Hawkmoon, and set off for the village. They lay in the grass and watched him walk down, whistling and enter the street. Then he disappeared. They waited for four hours. Hawkmoon's face began to grow grim, and he glanced resentfully at Oladan who pursed his lips and shrugged. It's a strange one, that. He glanced resentfully at Oladan. He's a bit of a prick at times, Hawkmoon, isn't he? But anyway, <laughs> it says, And then Deverk reappeared, but he had others with him. With a shock, Hawkmoon realised they were Dark Empire troops, men of the feared order of the Wolf, Baron Melidus's old order. Had they recognised Deverk and captured him? But no. On the contrary, Deverk seemed quite friendly with them. He waved, turned on his heel, and began to walk up the hill to where they were hidden, a large bundle on his back. Hawkman was puzzled, for the wolf masks had gone back into the village, allowing Deverk to go free. He could talk, can Deverk, grilled Oladan. He must have convinced them he was an innocent traveller. Doubtless, the Dark Empire is still using the soft approach in Carpathia. Perhaps. When Deverk came back, he flung down his bundle and pulled it open, displaying several shirts and a pair of breeches, as well as a number of different foodstuffs, cheeses, breads, sausages, cold meat and the like. He handed back most of Oladan's jewels to him. I purchased them relatively cheaply, he said, then frowned as he saw Hawkman's expression. Where's it, Duke Dorian? Not satisfied? I could not get the Lady Yzelda a gown, I regret, but the breeches and shirt should fit her. Dark Empire men. You seem very friendly with them. I was worried, I'll admit, but they seem to be cautious of violence, or in Carpathia to tell the folk of the benefits of Dark Empire rule. Apparently, the king of Carpathia is entertaining one of their nobles. The usual technique, gold before violence. They asked me a few questions, but were not unduly suspicious. They say the warring in Shekia have almost subdued that nation, but for a key city or two. You did not mention us. Of course not. Half-satisfied, Hawkman relaxed a little. Deverk picked up the cloth in which he'd wrapped his bundle. Look, four cloaks with hoods, such as the holy men in these parts were. 
They'll had our faces well enough. I heard there's a larger town about a day's walk further south. It's a town where they trade horses. We can get there by tomorrow and buy steeds. Is it a good idea? Aye, we need horses. Yeah, so that's... They're always teasing the heel turn from mm-hmm. Deverk, aren't they? They're teasing. Oh, yeah. He teases it frequently. He's a lovable scamp, sort of, but you never feel entirely able to trust him. But he's so charismatic that he's... You can kind of imagine and accept that he could bluff his way through just bumping into a gang of wolves. Yeah, uh, you can't trust mm. him, but you also can't hate him. Mm, yeah. So it turns out this town is called Zorvanemi. And they make the way into town. It's a bustling town. It's late in the evening. There are groups of dark Empire soldiers bustling around, but they've not, they're not invaded. They're still in charm mode, and they're looking to buy gear and equipment and trade. But they go to a bar, and they're drinking on the quiet with their hoods up, kind of Aragorn style, in the corner of the bar. But of course, it's a pub scene in a fantasy book. So yep. <laughs> what happens? Boar thugs turn up. They're knobheads, obviously. They get handsy with uh, a waiting girl. And at this point, one of them grabs one of these monks in disguise, drags them to the feet to say, you can marry us. So she doesn't have to wait until her wedding night. And he realises that it's actually a beautiful woman, not a monk. So they've been rumbled. Fight on. Hartman stood up. There was nothing for it now but to fight. Oladan and Deverk stood up. As one, they drew the swords hidden under their robes. As one, they launched themselves at the armoured warriors, yelling for the women to flee. The boar warriors were drunk and surprised, and the three companions were neither. It was their only advantage. Hawkmoon's blade slipped between breastplate and gorget of the leader and killed him before he could draw his own sword, while Oladan's swipe to another's barely protected legs hamstrung him. Deverk managed to slice off the hand of one who had stripped off his gauntlets. Now they fought back and forth across the tavern floor as men and women made hastily for the stairs and door, mainly to crowd to the gallery above to watch. Oladan, forsaking normal swordplay in the narrow room, had leapt onto the back of a huge opponent and, derking hand, was trying to stab him through the eye holes of his mask, <laughs> while the man clumsily tried to dislodge him, staggering about half-blind. Deverk was fencing with a swordsman of some skill who was driving him back steadily towards the stairs, while Hawkman was desperately defending himself against a man with a huge axe that, every time it missed him, chopped huge chunks out of the woodwork. Hawkman, hampered by his cloak, was trying to get out of it, and at the same time ducked the blows from the axe. He stepped to one side, tripped in the folds of the cloak and fell. Above, the axeman snorted and raised the axe for the final blow. Hawkman rolled just in time as the axe came down and sheared through the cloth of his gown. He leapt up as the warrior tugged the axe from the hardwood of the floor and swung his sword around to clang against the back of the axeman's neck. The man groaned and fell, dazed to his knees. Hawkman kicked back the mask, revealing a red, twisted face and stabbed into the gaping mouth, driving the sword deep into the throat so the jugular was cut and blood shot from the helm. Hawkman withdrew his blade and the helm clanged shut. That is such a great passage. And when you read it, if they ever made a TV show of this, like with a Game of Thrones kind of budget. Oh my God. That is a narrative storyboard for an absolutely fucking brilliant action scene. Oh it's, yeah, you can see fan- everything. Yeah, it's brilliant. Each each fighter has got their own style. Oladan yeah. is tenuous and, you know, like a fucking dog with a bone. Deverk is a fencer and a swordsman. 
Hawkmoon is just a brute and a fighter who will do anything. It's brilliant how each individual one is so simply depicted as having a, a style in this yeah. fight. It's fantastic. Anyway, they uh, they do get the fuck out of Dodge, and it says uh, where where blah blah blah. They began stripping the armor from the corpses. And Devek says, we can be sure of the landlords and town people's silence, for they'll not want it known that six Dark Empire warriors were killed here. And Aladdin watched them work, nursing his twisted arm. A pity, he said with a sigh. It was an exploit that should be recorded. Yeah. So, good chapter. Great bar fight. They now have a load of boar uniforms. Mm. And the other thing that they figured out, of course, while they were there, which we kind of skipped over a little bit, is they figured out the quickest route to Provence and back mm-hmm. to the Camargue, and they realise that they've got to go through this sheikier country that the Dark Empire are currently waging war in and besieging the last couple of cities. And one of the tracks they have to take is going to take them through a vast Grand Britannian camp, but they're going to do it in disguise. Unfortunately, these soldiers were boars, so de Verk can speak the cant of the Order of the Boar. Lucky. Quite handy. Yeah. <laughs> right, I am just going to pop a bottle of beer. I'm drinking, I'm going to have a, a Guinness West Indies Porter because it's half past seven here. And I have just finished a tasty mug of Trader Joe's spiced chai. Mm. With a little bit of honey. Yeah. As it is uh, about noon here. Chapter 8, they head into Shekia, Shekia, Shekia. Oladan's unhappy in his armour, doesn't like it at all. Neither does his elder, she finds it too heavy. Devek's saying, actually, I feel naked without it. Oladan just kicks his helmet out of frustration. There's another nice passage, and it says, A day and a night later, they were riding deep into Shekia. There was no doubt that the Dark Empire had conquered the province, for towns and villages everywhere were laid waste. Crucified corpses hung along every road. Carrion birds were thick in the air and even thicker on the ground where they feasted. The night had been as light as if the sun were permanently on the horizon, lit by the funeral pyres of villages, farms, towns, villas and cities. And the black hordes of the island empire of Grand Bretagne, brands in one hand, swords in the other, rode like demons from hell, howling and shrieking across the broken land. Survivors hid, cringing from the fore as they rode in disguise through this world of terror, galloping as fast as they could, for none suspected them. They were just one small pack of murderers and looters among many, and neither friend nor foe had any suspicion of their real identities. Which is handy, because they do come across a troop of boars, and they're out foraging. But de Verk handles the conversation in the guttural, snarling cant of that beast order. I love all those nice little details of how the Grand Britannians are so institutionally and culturally inward-looking and insane that even the cant of the orders is beast-like and guttural according to which order it is in particular because they trust each other between orders so little that they have their own modes of communication. Yeah. It just adds that, adds that little layer of paranoia to the, to, the, uh, to the Grand Britannians. And eventually they do reach the vast encampment, which is even bigger than they expected. And again, some really fantastic 
Moorcock when it comes to vivid depictions of stuff. And it says, there were canopies, tents, even huts built here and there, cooking fires of all descriptions on which food of all descriptions was being prepared, and corrals for horses, bullocks and mules. Slaves hauled great war machines through the mud of the camp, goaded on by men of the Order of the Ants. Banners fluttered in the breeze, and the standards of a score of military orders were stuck here and there in the ground. From a distance, it seemed like some primeval concourse of beasts, as a line of wolves tramped across a ruined field, or a gathering of moles, one of the engineering orders, groaned about a cooking fire, while elsewhere could be seen wasps, ravens, ferrets, rats, foxes, tigers, boars, flies, hounds, badgers, goats, wolverines, otters, and even a few mantises, the select guards whose grand constable was King Juan himself. Hawkmoon himself recognised several of the banners, those of Edas Promp, fat grand constable of the Order of the Hound, Brienal Fano's ornate flag showing him to be a baron of Grand Britain and the rat's grand constable, the fluttering standard of Shenagar Trot, Count of Sussex. Hartman guessed that this city must be the last to fall in a sustained campaign, and that was why the army was so large and attended by so many high-ranking warlords. He made out Shenagar Trot himself being borne in a horse litter towards his tent, his robes covered in jewels, his pale silver mask wrought in the parody of a human face. Shenagar Trot sounded like a soft-living, soft-brained aristocrat ruined by rich living. But Hartmoon had seen Shenagar Trot do battle at the ford of Vitzner on the Rhine, had seen him deliberately sink himself and horse under water and ride along the river bottom to emerge on the enemy's bank. It was the puzzling thing about all Dark Empire noblemen. They seemed soft, lazy and self-indulgent, yet they were as strong as the beasts they pretended to be and were often braver. Shenagar Trot was also the man who had hacked off the limb of a screaming child and eaten a bite from it while his mother was forced to watch. Ooh, gruesome. That's, mm, that's quite grim, isn't it? But again, decent Moorcock descriptions and scene setting and world building. And we've never really had a Shenagar Trot before. And we don't really hear him mentioned again in the rest of this book. But he's memorable instantly. We know he's a rotter and he will pop up in one of the subsequent books in this series. Yeah, he's a proper wrong so they set up camp in the belly of the beast, but it's kind of cool. They get the weaponry refreshed by a group of badgers who come across with a wagon with sharpening implements. They give Yzelda a sword, because she didn't have one. And they get news of the Camargue from a wolf warrior who turns up and asks for some of Oladan's sausage. And Oladan is happy to comply. And they find that the siege of Camargue, according to this wolf soldier, has cost Grand Britain a million men because the weaponry... The advanced weaponry of the Camargue has held them up so badly. Exaggeration, perhaps, exaggeration of a soldier, but nevertheless, it still stands that that is what they were told. Deverk, at this point, thinks something is off, and he decides to go scouting, which is unfortunate, as a bar approaches and they're unable to communicate, and things go slightly pear-shaped, and at this point, they rumbled. "'Who are you?' growled the boar. Why wear the armour of another order? What sense does that make? Hawkmoon flung back his helm, revealing his pale face and the black jewel that shone there. I am Hawkmoon, he said simply, and leaped forward into the mass of astonished warriors. The pair took the lives of five of the Dark Empire men before the noise of the fight brought others running from all over the camp. Riders galloped up. 
All around him, Hawkmoon was aware of shouts and the babble of voices. His arm rose and fell in the darkness of the press, but soon it was gripped by a dozen hands, and he felt himself borne down. A spear half caught him, a buffet in the back of his neck, and he fell into the mud of the field. Dazed, he was dragged upright and hauled before a tall, black-armored figure seated on a horse some distance away from the main mass. His mask was lifted back, and he peered up at the horseman. Ah, this is pleasant, Duke of Colm, came the deep, musical voice from within the horseman's helm, a voice edged with evil and with malice, a voice Hawkman recognized dimly, but could not believe in his recognition. My long journey has not been wasted, said the horseman, turning to his mounted companion. I am glad, my lord, was the reply. I trust I am now reinstated in the eyes of the King Emperor. Hawkmoon's head jerked up to look at the other man. His eyes blazed as he recognized the elaborate mask helm of the Averk. Thickly, Hawkmoon cried, So you have betrayed us. Another betrayal. Are all men traitors to Hawkmoon's cause? He tried to break free to grab with his hands at the Averk, but the warriors held him back. <laughs> you are naive, Duke Dorian. <coughs> have you got the others? The horseman asked. The girl and the little beast man? Aye, your excellency, answered one of them. Then bring them to my camp. I want to expect them all. I want to inspect them all closely. This is a very satisfying day for me. <gasps> dun, dun, so, dun. captured, and not only captured, but Meliodas lives. He escaped Hamadan. Oh, of course he did. So, if anybody's interested, see The Jewel in the Skull, book three, our episode some time back when they're in Hamadan. Melidas, of course he wasn't dead. He's he's basically the chief protagonist, or sorry, the chief antagonist on the part of Grand Bretagne, the moustache twirling villain, who in my mind is always played by Peter Wingard, and I love it. And we get some absolute top quality preening Melidas here. It is wonderful. Chapter nine. So there's a couple of paragraphs, and then it starts with Hartman grunting. Baron Melitus, you did not die at Hamadan. No, I did not die, Hawkmoon, though you wounded me sorely. I escaped that battlefield. Few of your men did. We defeated you, routed you. Bring chains. Bring many chains, strong and of great weight. Heap them upon these dogs and rivet them. I want no locks that might be picked. This time I will be sure they are brought to Grand Britain. He left his chair and descended to peer through the eye slits in his mask at Hawkman's face. They have discussed you often at King Juan's court, have devised such exquisite, such elaborate, such splendid punishments for you, traitor. Your dying will take a year or two, and each moment will be agony of mind, spirit, and body. All our ingenuity, Hawkmoon, we have squandered on you. He stepped back and reached out a black gauntlet to cup his elder's hate-twisted face. She turned her head, eyes filled with anger and despair. And as for you, I offer you all honours to become my wife. Now, you will have no honour. But a husband I shall be to you until I tire of you, or your body breaks. The wolf head moved slowly to regard Oladan. And as for this creature, unhuman, yet upstart enough to walk on two legs... He shall crawl and whine like the animal he is. Be trained to behave like a proper beast. Oladan spat at the jewelled mask. I'll have an excellent model in you, he said. 
Melidas whirled, cloak swirling, and limped heavily back to his chair. I'll save all until we've presented ourselves at the throne globe. I've been patient, and will remain so for a few more days. We move off at first light, returning to Grand Britain, but we shall take a slight detour in order that you may witness the final destruction of the Camargue. I've been there for a month, you know, and watched its men die daily, watched the towers fall one by one. There are not many left. I've told them to hold off the last assault until I return. I thought you would like to see your homeland. Ripped. <laughs> ah, here are the chains. Members of the Order of the Badger were coming in bearing huge iron chains, a brazier, hammers and rivets. Hawkmoon, Yzelda and Oladan struggled as the Badgers bound them, but soon they were forced down to the floor by the weight of the iron links. Oh, he's a bugger. Mm. Now, at this point, Hawkmoon is kind of losing the will a little bit, isn't he? He's slipping back into his kind of traumatised state that we saw him in, in Duel of the Skull. He feels that the warrior in Jet and Gold has betrayed him. Now Deverk has betrayed him. And it's all just too much. And it stings too much. Yes. He's a great villain, though, Melidas, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's a quality villain. So, chapter 10. They arrive at the Camargue. And there's a battle. A glorious battle underway whilst they're chained up. And, of course, they've been flung in a caravan. And Hawkmoon has seen Melidas riding and he's seen Deverk riding alongside him. And he's so enraged, but he's actually just retreating back into his his fog, his post-traumatic fog. I think it's, it's really it's really interesting as well. We commented on it when we did the Jewel in the Skull of how it's a really different take on a fantasy character to basically have a character start out almost catatonic from yeah. essentially post-traumatic stress disorder. And for him to... It's easy to say Hartman's a Burke, but when you think back to his history and the trauma of losing his father, losing his family, losing his city, leading this army, turning on the Grand Britannians as a mercenary... Working as a mercenary, t- trying to start a rebellion, seeing all of his followers crucified. He's been through it a little bit. So these, these betrayals and his, his tendency to see people in the most negative terms, all is fairly consistent, really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I bagged him a little bit earlier on for being so mistrusted of the warrior and jet and gold, but I guess if you've been through all that, well, you know, it's it's maybe um, understandable. So there's a glorious battle underway. The Grand Britannians are attacking the walls of the Camargue. The, uh, the Black Towers still stand. What happens next? Oh! Turns out Deverk's a good guy after all. Aha. A yes. double double cross. A double double cross. Because they're super unhappy, but actually Deverk comes by the caravan and makes uh, a little aside. And Melidas is still gloating. He says, Cambras is dead. And now dies the Camargue. Forward. Let them see the carnage. The wagon began to move again, bumping down the hill road to its plane. Its prisoners propped in it with stricken faces and miserable eyes. Deverk continued to ride beside the wagon, coughing ostentatiously. The Baron's medicine's not bad, he said at length. It should cure the ills of all his men. And with that enigmatic pronouncement, he urged his horse into a gallop to reach the head of the column and ride beside his master. 
Hartman saw strange rays flash from the towers of the Camargue and strike into the gathered ranks that came against them, leaving scars of smoking ground where men had been. He saw the cavalry of the Camargue begin to move up to take its positions, a thin line of battered guardians riding their horned horses, flame lances on their shoulders. He saw ordinary townsfolk from the settlements, armed with swords and axes, coming in the wake of the cavalry, but he did not see Count Brass, he did not see Von Villach, and he did not see the philosopher Burgentle. The men of the Camargue marched leaderless to this last battle. He heard the faint sounds of their battle shouts, coming over the howls and roars of the attackers, the crack of cannon and the shriek of flame lances. Heard the clatter of armour and the creak of metal, smelled beast and man and weapon marching through the mud, and then he saw the black hordes pause as a wall of fire rose into the air before them, and scarlet flingers flew over it, riders aiming flame lances at the clanking ornithopters. The battle goes on into the evening. Night falls, and the the wolf guards who have been sitting around talking and laughing fall asleep and are snoring heavily. And this is where perhaps Devek's comment about the ills of the Grand Britannians being affected by the medicines comes into action. Because up pops Hawkmoon. Oladan remarked on it. Not like the vigilante wolves to sleep so hard. They must be confident. Aye, but it does us no good. These damn chains are riveted so fast that we have no hope of escaping. What's this? The voice was diverse. No longer optimistic, Hawkmoon. I find it hard to believe. Away with you, Diverk. Back to lick the boots of your master. I had brought this, Diverk said in a mock-aggrieved tone, to see if it would serve you. He displayed a bulky object in his hand. After all, it was my medicine that drugged the guards. What's that in your hand? A rarity I found on the battlefield. Some great commanders, I'd judge, for there are few of them to be found these days. It's a kind of flame lance, though small enough to be carried in one hand. I've heard of them. What use is it to me? I'm in chains, as you see. Aye, I noted that. If you take a risk, however, it might be that I could release you. Is this a new trap, Devark, that you and Meliadus have concocted between you? I'm hurt, Hawkmoon. Why would you think that? Because you betrayed us into Meliadus's hands. You must have prepared the trap well ahead when you spoke to those wolf warriors in that Carpathian village. You sent them to find their master and arranged to lead us to that camp where we could be most easily captured. Why, it sounds possible, though you could see it another way. The wolf warriors recognised me then and followed us, going later to warn their master. I heard the rumour at the camp that Melidas had come to find you, decided to tell Melidas I had led you into this trap so that one of us would be free at least. How does that sound? Glib. Well, yes, it does sound glib. Now, Hawkmoon, there is not much time. Shall I see if I can burn your chains without burning you, or would you rather keep your seats for fear of missing a development in the battle? Burn the damn chains, for at least my hands free I'll have a chance to choke you if you lie. <laughs> I love the relationship between Hawkmoon and Deverk. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So he's got a handheld flame lance, kind of like a, I suppose, a laser pistol, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, he frees them, he gets them out, he gears them up with wolf masks and swords and gear. They all get on horses, and then they ride hell for leather for the defenders. And there's, again, another brilliant bit of Deverk, and it says, uh, the head of the steeds galloping up the hill rode towards them, heard confused shouts and an angry bellow that could only be Melidas's. Quick, Deverk hissed, we must ride, ride for the Camargue. 
They kicked their horses into a wild gallop and began to career down the hill towards the main battlefield. "'Make way!' Deverk screamed. "'Make way! The force must move through! Reinforcements for the front!' Men leapt aside for their horses as they thundered through the thick of the camp, cursing the four figures who rode so heedlessly. "'Make way!' Deverk yelled. "'A message for the Grand Commander!' He found time to turn his head and call to Hawkmoon. "'It bores me to sustain the same lie!' He yelled again. "'Make way! The potion for the plague struck!' Behind them, the head of the horses as Melidas and his men came in pursuit. Ahead, they could now see that the fighting still continued, but not with the intensity it had earlier. "'Make way!' bellowed de Verk. "'Make way for Baron Melidas!' And on they go, eventually realising they need to get the masks off so the defenders can see that it's Hawkmoon who's approaching the gate. This goes relatively well, but unfortunately, Melidas is chasing them, shouting, "'Stop! You perish by your own forces, fools!' Flame lances open up from both sides, and de Verk had his head down over his horse's neck, but Hawkman draws his sword and yells, It's me, it's us, we're coming! And the flame lances do not seize, they're getting closer and closer. De Verk straightened in his saddle. Camargians, I bring you Hawkmoon, who will? And fire splashed him. He flung up his arms, cried out, and began to topple from his saddle. Hawkmoon hastily drew alongside, steadying the body. The armor was red hot, melted in places, but de Verk seemed not wholly dead. A faint laugh came from the blistered lips. A piece of serious misjudgment linking my fortune with yours, Hawkmoon. Just wonderful. <laughs> anyway, they realise that it's Hawkmoon and co, and they make it to the lines, and they get to Castle Brass. And it turns out as they get there, Deverk, we know that Deverk now was a good guy, although you always get that sense that Deverk is maybe making calculations as he goes. An opportunist, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is, I think, is part of the appeal. He is something of a scoundrel, even though he actually did command Grand Britannians, as Hawkmoon did, so they both got shady pasts. But you've got True. that little sense that um, that Deverk is something of a scoundrel and uh, a charismatic chancer, which I think is what makes him such a, such a fun character. But they get there. It turns out Count Brass is alive but he's been in bed in a melancholic fog. Essentially, Count Brass, much like Hawkmoon himself, this towering hero of the tragic millennium, the idea that he'd lost his daughter and that he's about to lose the Camargue, essentially, is succumbed to depression. And even the greatest heroes can succumb to the deepest depression. So he's been lying in his bed and he's really been a, a, an injury of the mind which has stopped him leading the battle. And I think that's really interesting as well, that actually Count Brass's towering character, is, you could read it as it being actually quite glib and an easy way of reintroducing him back to the action, that there's been all these rumours of his death, but I like the idea of Count Brass being that vulnerable, that the fact that he's, you know, the potential loss of his daughter and the loss of everything around him just makes him sink into a depression that you just can't get out of yeah it's not like king theoden where it's all saruman's spell or something like that because it's a similar kind of thing yeah um but but this is actually quite plainly stated that he is essentially in a massive depression yeah he's lost everything uh you know that he loved basically i mean his daughter was kidnapped you know his yeah. son-in-law to be who knows where and you know his whole his towers are crumbling and his men are dying and you know it seems pretty inevitable mm. they're going to be defeated mm. yeah fortunately zelda gives him a kiss and says i am real have a real kiss 
Heart Moon's with me. And all of a sudden, well, he's back, baby. He's like, bring me my armor. Um, but, but gentles, but you're so frail. He's like, well, get me something to eat then. <laughs> get me something to feast on and get me my armor. So Count Brass is back on his feet. But as this happens, the find, someone rushes in and tells them that the last of the towers has finally fallen. The last of the black towers of this ancient pre-tragic millennium technology that has successfully held back the waves of the millions, the horde of Grand Britain has fallen. So, surely, this is the end for the Camargue. These last couple of chapters, I've got to say, after the bits with the warrior women and knocking them on the head when they've tied them up in nets, since then, this has really accelerated into really, really great Mocock stuff. You've got the drama, betrayals, counter-betrayals, desperate battles, a moustache-twirling villain... Great stuff. The thro- the Warrior Babe and Throbbing Bridge stuff is fun. It's strange when it's littered amongst passages where they're talking about pyramids of dead naked women and children. Yeah. And <laughs> but when once you get to this stuff, it, it feels a little bit like padding, getting from A to B. Great flavoured padding, but padding nevertheless. And I think it's probably necessary because you can't have stuff like this all the time. You've got to have something to you've got to have some connective tissue but this is the really good stuff yeah um, i mean it feels like it's more it feels like it's you know we're we're back at it all the the main kind of central characters record of the story they're all in one place and basically yeah. you know it's not like a, a kind of like a side quest a series of side mm. quests or something it's you know here's the meat and potatoes of the story and now we get to kind of move along and mm. have it progress and so, yeah, I, I, I think that's ultimately why I, I kind of liked uh, book two a lot more um, as, as metal and crazy and cool as book one was. Book two yeah. is that to an even greater extreme, but then it also connects back to the narrative and, and kind of allows it to move forward in a satisfying way as well. Yeah. And you get these nice character moments when they're traveling around, you know. Um, yeah, so ultimately uh, I, I like book two quite mm. a lot. Mm, me too. And it's probably, it might be 15 or 20 years since I've read them. And my memories of the Hartman books, Mad God's Amulet and Sword of the Dawn were a little bit woolly in my head. And in my head, I thought a lot of it was probably, again, quite a lot of that connective tissue and, and a little bit less of the substance. But on rereading, the connective tissue is a small part of it. The chunky stuff is all there. Now, I also have a memory that the Rune Staff, the fourth volume, it only really comes together in the last third. So it'll be interesting to, to get through the next two books and, and reevaluate them. But yeah. anyway, the Camargue looks to be falling. They ride out to battle to rally the exhausted defenders. And there's a cinematic bit here on the first page of chapter 11. The chapter's called Return of the Warrior. I got goosebumps when I read it. And I love that if I'm going to read a book and I'm going to get excited and I get goosebumps when I read a bit and think this is really fucking cool. And it's it's cool stuff, but the way it's written is super cool. And it says, A cheer went up from the hard-pressed Camargians as Count Brass and Hawkmoon appeared, and they held their ground, even drove the Grand Britannians back in places. Count Brass, with Hawkmoon and Oladan following, rode into the thick of his men, once again the invincible man of metal. Aside, lads, he called. Aside, and let me get at the enemy! Count Brass grabbed his own battered standard from a nearby rider, and with this balanced in the crook of his arm, his sword waving, 
he drove forward at the mass of beast masks ahead. Hawkman rode up beside him, and they made a menacing, almost supernatural pair, the one in his flaming armour of brass, and the other with a black jewel embedded in his forehead, their swords rising and falling on the heads of the tightly packed Grand Britannian infantry. And when another figure joined them, a stocky man with fur covering his face, and a flashing sabre striking here and there like lightning, there seemed a trio out of mythology, unnerving the beast warriors of Grand Britannia, so that they fell back. Brilliant, it's cinematic, it's rousing. It's like the end of a spaghetti western, where the three protagonists come together on the street and one steps out of one door on one side and one steps out of the other. It's like it's like a, a massively heightened version of the end of Kelly's Heroes. You've got Clint Eastwood in the middle and Telly Savalas comes out of one door and Oddball comes out of the other and they stand and face down the tiger tank, the three of them, with the spaghetti western music playing. There All of these go. things tumble through my <laughs> head with that thing as the, these three ultimate warriors kind of coming together to drive all before them and it's absolutely brilliant a rousing score with a big power chord and a filter sweep as this happens oh yeah love oh, it oh yeah absolutely love it but the battle does swing against them they know that they're in trouble there's there's a, there's a nice bit where it says the day wore on and the fighting continued without respite Hawkman swayed in his saddle now, battle-weary and half-dazed with pain from a dozen minor cuts and a great many bruises. His horse was killed, but the weight of men surrounding him was so great that he sat it for half an hour before he realised it was dead. <laughs> Just like this in incredible press of flesh that holds your dead horse up because everything yeah. is so tight around you. So vivid. And then a couple of paragraphs later, he says, Ah, he murdered himself. If only we had a few hundred fresh troops, we might win the day. By the rune staff, we need aid. Suddenly, a strange electric sensation ran through his body, and he gasped, recognizing what was happening to him, realizing that he had unconsciously invoked the rune staff. The red amulet, which now glowed at his neck, spreading red light on the armor of his enemies, was now transmitting power into his body. He laughed and began to hew around him with his fantastic strength, cutting back the circle of warriors attacking him. His sword snapped, but he grabbed a lance from a horseman riding at him, dragged its owner from his saddle, and swinging the lance like a sword, jumped onto the horse and resumed the attack. Hawk Moon! Hawk Moon! <laughs> he cried, using the old battle cry of his ancestors. Hi, Oladan, Count Brass! He gouged his way through the beast-mask warriors between himself and his friends. Count Brass's standard still swayed in its owner's hands. Drive them back! Hawkmoon yelled, drive them back to our borders! And Hawkman was everywhere, a wailing bringer of death. He raced through the ranks of Grand Bretagne, and where he passed, there were only corpses. A great muttering went up from the enemy then, and they began to falter. Soon they were falling back, some actually running from the field, and then the figure of Baron Melidas appeared, crying out to them to turn, to stand, and to fight. "'Back!' he cried. "'You cannot fear so few!' But the tide was completely on the turn now, and he himself was caught by it. Borne back, by his retreating men. They fled in terror from the pale-faced knight whose sword fell everywhere, in whose skull a black jewel shone, and at whose throat hung an amulet of scarlet fire, whose fierce horse reared over their heads. They had heard, too, that he shouted the name of a dead man, that he himself was a dead man. Dorian Hawkmoon, who had fought against them at Colne, and had almost defeated them there, who had defied the King Emperor himself, who had nearly slain Baron Melidas, and had, in fact, defeated him more than once. Hawkmoon, it was the only name the Dark Empire feared. So now we know that Hawkmoon 
is not just a man. Hawkmoon is an idea in the minds of the Grand Britannians that's bigger than a man, and it's almost as powerful as the Red Amulet. The Red Amulet gave him the buff, but the actual fear of that iconic man who stood against Grand Britain and simply seems unkillable becomes a bigger idea than the ability to rend flesh, and he turns the tide. And the Grand Britannians fall back and they push them back to the old walls where the towers were. But it's still a temporary reprieve because the siege reaches Castle Brass. Ornithopters rain down fire. Deverk, however, has recovered his appetite for meat and is laid in bed, still coughing ostentatiously, but recovering. But it's pressure, it's all stressful. So Hawkmoon and Yzelda have a shotgun wedding. Melidas offers parley, but Count Brass tells him to shove it. All looks lost. But who turns up? Well, it's the warrior in Jet and Gold, of course. He shows up with Hawkmoon's saddlebag and the crystal machine gifted to them by Rinal. Brackets. See Mad God's Amulet Book 1. Warrior in Jet and Gold didn't betray him, of course. He just went off to figure out how to use it. <laughs> Which I think I thought was really funny. It's like, well, where have you been? I said, well, I had to go figure out how to use this. So somewhere he got the PDF of the manual for Rhinel's machine so he could actually figure out how to use it. Uh, but he's figured out how to use it now and it's good to go and he can use it. In poor Melidus' poor Melidus, poor moment of triumph, while he's just bearing down on the walls and the breached one of the walls of Castle Brass. The castle shimmers and then disappears. And poor Melidus is left there going, Nyah, I'll get you <laughs> next time, Hawkmoon! It's, it's fucking great. I love Melidus, even though I shouldn't love him because he's such a, he's such a, a terrible, you terrible bastard. You love to hate him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's completely wonderful. And... It says uh, the troops had begun to turn back. Some were running, but Baron Melidus dismounted from his horse, hands outstretched, trying to feel for the vanished town. He screamed with fury and wept with impotent rage, falling at last to his knees in the mud and shaking his fist at where Castle Brass had been. I will find you, Hawkmoon, and your friends. I will bring all the scientific knowledge of Grand Britain to bear on this search, and I will follow you, if needs be, to whatever place you have escaped to, whether it be on this earth or beyond it, and you will know my vengeance. By the rune staff, I swear this. And then he looked up as he heard the thump of a horse's hooves riding past him. Thought he saw a figure flash by in armour of jet and gold. Thought he heard ghostly, ironic laughter, and then the rider too had vanished. <laughs> Baron Melidus rose up from his knees and looked around him for his horse. Oh, Hawk Moon, he said through clenched teeth. Oh, Hawk Moon! I will catch thee. Again, he had sworn by the rune staff, as on that fateful morning two years before, and his action had set in motion a new pattern of history. His second oath strengthened that pattern, whether it favoured Melidus or Hawkmoon, and hardened all their destinies a little more strongly. Meanwhile, the Camarg is elsewhere, dwelling on the plain of a quite different Camarg, and they have respite. Hawkmoon's cool, he's married. He had a shotgun wedding, but he knows, because the warrior in Jet and Gold told him, that he'll be back with a new mission. But for now, he has peace. The end of the Mad God's Amulet. That's right. And that was really thoroughly enjoyable. What do you think? Yeah, that was a great ending. That was a truly epic battle. I mean, 
the twists, the turns, the mm. epic power of the rubies and yeah. you know ancient multi-dimensional technology gotta love it yeah good stuff it, yeah it, and it's I, th I think it is out of all of mocock's main eternal champion iterations it does feel in some ways the most unique in right. terms of in terms of setting in terms of world i like all the cosmological stuff in quorum with it basically arguing and debating with gods and bringing gods down i like the rawness of the young kingdoms to a degree and you know elric's adventures where he can go from being a i don't know a morose weirdo to actually just sitting in a bar with moonglum and stories can end and begin like a conan story where the end of they've got jewels and at the beginning of the next one moonglum's moaning because they've spent all the money um or elric's gave a, a pub landlord a, a Melnibonian crown <laughs> to pay for two nights accommodation. <laughs> you know, you, you get all that lovely stuff in the Eric stories, but there's something uh, a little bit more unique and different about the Hawkmoon books. Uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyable. They're um, really the only ones with like a, like really like a set villain, like from the beginning. I mean, you know, you have, mm. you have, uh, you know, Irkun and Elric, you have Philip Karna and Elric. And I mean, Philip Karna probably is the closest we get to that. But I mean, right off the bat, mm. there's a through line with Baron Meliadis that he's going to be, you know, the thorn in Hawkmoon's side and vice versa and stuff like that. Yeah. You don't really have that too much with um, the other ones. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. The, yeah. the, the setup, the characters, the conflicts, you do have a core cast of protagonists and antagonists. Yeah. So I think in terms in terms of Elric, Thelab Karnas maybe in three stories or something. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Whereas otherwise you've got like the King of Nadsokor, you've got the Theocrat of Pantang really only pops up towards the end in terms of the narrative chronology, you know, he he kind of comes into things in, in Stormbringer. So yeah, that's a good point. It's it's the most established set of villains, isn't it? And yeah. even in even in the second um, Hawkmoon run, the Chronicles of Castle Brass, it's not Melidus, It's more it's more Tarragon, I think, in from the Palace of Time in that series, isn't it? And it all gets a bit a bit cosmic and a bit kind of split worlds and different versions oh, yeah. of of worlds, and gets a little bit more psychedelic. But yeah, that's a really good point. So yeah, great, well established world, well established setting that still allows Mocock to throw in and burn ideas for fun. But still feels like a, a a cohesive setting, yeah. yeah, yeah, with a cohesive set of villains, with a a consistent set of motivations as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Good fist shaking villains. Now, who is mm. it that you uh, you picture for Baron Meliadis? So I like Peter Wingard as Baron Meliadis. Gotcha. I'm unfamiliar with him. Yeah, Wingard W Y N Guard. Gotcha. Yeah. So he played a character on TV called Jason King. And you're probably most likely Aww. to be aware of him by his voice. Because you remember the Dino De Laurentiis Flash Gordon film? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I just looked him up. That was like one of the first pictures that came yeah. up. Holy crap. His, okay. his voice yeah. is so easily recognized. He's, he's Clytus. Clytus, wow. I'm bored. What playthings yeah. could you offer me today? An yeah. obscure planet in the SK system. And it's, got, <laughs> it's just got a rich, honeyed turn. But there's, there's one specific picture of him, all in leather, from a Jason King TV series. I think I used that image when we did Duel in the School Part 1 
when I did it with Tash a couple of years ago. That's the one. There yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Looks um, like Tony Iommi. Yes. <laughs> from Black yeah, Sabbath. Does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Absolutely wonderful. I would, if I could dreamcast the Jew in the Skull with any actor from any time, yeah, he, he is totally Melidus for me. Every it's pretty funny. Is he time. almost he almost looks somewhat similar to uh, who just for whatever reason just keeps popping up in my head every time I I read some Meliadus dialogue and that's Vincent Price. Yeah, very, very oh, similar I'll kind get of tone. Oh, Moon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh, you know, just yeah. ringing his fists there. Yeah, and that that makes it even better for me because I love <laughs> freaking love Vincent Price. Yeah. Oh man. Well, you know what? I had I had casting conversations with Tash when we did Jewel in the Skull. So for Melidas, dream casting, we've got Vincent Price and or um, Peter Wingard, potentially. What about Hawkmoon? I don't know. How do you cast as Hawkmoon? Because he's, he's a pretty bland character. I mean, that, that's kind of the easy thing, right? I mean, you could get in, yeah. you could get like a, a Chris Hemsworth or something like that, mm. somebody big and blonde. I mean, well, it, I mean, ideally it'd be somebody you could do a German accent. Yeah. Um, you know, something like that. I, I quite like uh, Till. Is it Till Schweiger, who was in? He might be a little bit old now, but if you could get Till Schweiger when he was about thirty, or Thomas Kretschmann, hmm. who um, Thomas Kretschmann probably best known for is a German actor, but he was in. I mean, he was in Schindler's List, but just about every German actor was in Schindler's List. But he played the the captain of the ship in the Peter Jackson King Kong movie. Really traditionally handsome yeah. guy, but also a really great actor. So yeah, Thomas yeah. Kretschmann I think would make a good would have made a good Hawkmoon at the right age. I think Till Schweiger would have made a really good Hawkmoon. He's probably best known for being the German member of the Inglorious Bastards, the Tarantino movie. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think right, I'm so. To think so back. it's been a while. You know what? Just cast a German actor. I reckon for for Hawkmoon. That'd be good. Yeah. I bet if it, if if this were this were adapted in the eighties, it totally just would have been Arnold Schwarzenegger, and what a crazy movie that would be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a shame because I'm thinking fifty year old Schwarzenegger as Count Brass. Honestly, that would be great. I, I I've kind of pictured him like that too. Yeah. I've, yeah. Actually, that, actually, that's actually kind of an interesting idea too, because you know you never really get exactly where you know, Count Brass is from. Mm. So like, I'm trying to picture, okay, like what accent does he have? Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, would it make sense that he would have like an English accent or that most of these characters would have an English accent? Probably not. Cause that's the dark empire. Right. Yeah. Um, so unless they're from there, you, you know, it could be argued that they have to be from somewhere else or something. So, you know, I've kind of pictured him almost like Sean Connery mm. or Arnold Schwarzenegger, just kind of vacillating sort of between, those two because yeah i mean i feel yeah arnold would be kind of perfect but then he'd yeah. also be german and i feel like hawkman would be like oh <laughs> hey yeah me yeah. too you know yeah. i think there's also um keeping the flash garden connection i think um another potential malidus could have been timothy dalton um, oh yeah Prince that's Baron. actually that'd be a great choice yeah because if, if you've seen him playing the villain in um the second the, not the zombie one, not Shaun of the Dead. Um, what was the police? The police one. That oh did. yeah, Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. And he's the, yeah. he's the he's the evil manager of yeah, the supermarket. He's, he's great. He's great. Yeah. He, he, he can totally be super menacing, but he's also he's got actually he's probably a perfect choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, a little a little younger, I guess, but um, yeah, because he's got that menace. He could be suave, charming. He's a good looking dude. Yeah, absolutely. Wears a mustache really well. Yeah. So that he was that very good in the Rocketeer 
as the villain in yeah, the Rocketeer with a nice with yeah. a nice tash as well, wasn't it? Oh my god, I had that on VHS. I used to watch that all the time as a kid. It's been yeah. a long time since I've seen that. But yeah, he was a great villain in that all. I hated him as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Rocketeer's still pretty good. It's, it was like the you know, the last during the last heyday of really great pre CGI special effects. Uh, I really like the Rocketeer. Another Flash Gordon connection potentially, and I think it's a shame he's not taller because I've met him and he's not actually very tall. He seems bigger on screen. Brian Blessed, who plays Voltan in Flash Gordon, he would make <laughs> a great Count Brass. Hawkman dive. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. yeah. L- lots of that. Dive. That great his bellowing voice. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be great too. Loz's favourite for Count Brass um, is the tall, red-headed, bearded guy from Game of Thrones who was one of the uh, wildlings, who became the main wildling mate of Jon Snow. Christopher Hibbew. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. He'd be a good Count Brass. Yeah. But you'd need need a lot of tall actors around him to stop him from towering over everybody. Or is that the point with Count Brass? Should he be absolutely enormous? Probably. I mean, he's kind of a larger-than-life figure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Deverk. Oh man, mm. he's got to be somebody who can who can do action, but also can be sardonic, yeah. funny. Yeah, that's that's kind of tricky. Well, I, I think he'd like be the hardest to one like a, to cast. Yeah, I feel like you'd have to have more like a character actor kind of face too. You yeah. know what I mean? He couldn't yeah. just be like you know just like a classically handsome guy. I feel like you'd you'd have to have I don't know some kind of like more distinguished features. Um, mm. I don't, I don't, I don't think he's described it, but I, I also kind of picture him having a mustache. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm thinking like um, probably a goatee. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Perhaps, you know, pr- perhaps a, that a little, mus- a little mustache and a, a, yeah, a little mm, goatee just down here. Wax up there. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, it, impeccably quaffered. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Somebody who can be really like kind of like effeminate and just <laughs> the air is not good for me. You know. Yeah. Obviously, mm. do a, a good French accent much better than myself. Yeah. Um, well, once again, maybe we just need a French actor to play yep. that role. Yeah. Somebody oh. out there who listens to this, throw us some casting names for anybody, but particularly Deverk. Yeah. Oh, you know who would actually be pretty good? I'm blanking on his name, but he's been in like a bunch of stuff. He was in the. Uh, that adaptation of Mobius's uh, Blueberry. Oh, oh Vincent Castle. God. That's the one. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. I can see him being good. Yeah. Because he, he, he's got that kind of distinguishing face, and he, he can be pretty kind of sly, too. So. Yeah, and, and he doesn't often get to play sardonic. No, either. I think he could do it. I think and he, he could, could definitely do, do the action, too. Yeah. Great actor. I think he could do it. I think he's, yeah. he's, he's at a stage in his career now where he's like probably, you know, knocking on 50 or whatever. And he brings a massive amount of gravitas to anything he's in. Anything yeah. at all. I used oh, to yeah. love him. The first time I saw him was in La Haine, which I think was one of his earliest screen roles. But mm. I just think he's absolutely brilliant in everything he's in. There's a three part French movie called Mesrin um, mm. about a French criminal, which is well worth tracking down. It's absolutely great in that. We watched something with him recently where it's set in kind of revolutionary period France. And he, what was that called? I can't remember. But yeah, yeah, great actor. And I watched a film not so long ago called Underwater, which I think bombed. I think it was a movie that was done by Fox, then Disney bought them and it kind of got buried. Kristen Stewart was in it. And it's like a science oh, right. fiction film set at the bottom oh, of the ocean. 
Yeah, actually, that was cool. Yeah, like Cthulhu comes out at the end, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I really, right. I really, really, really liked that movie. That was a and, cool movie, and it's it's just a great example of stick him in something, and he instantly elevates. Be it. Good. Yeah. yeah. Everything Absolutely you know, everything I've seen him in has usually been kind of like yeah. Usually it's been like yeah, it's like a, like kind of like a side character, but he just he he just brings so much to a role. He's mm. always a standout in everything I see him in. Mm. You know, and you got to admire him because he was. I think he still is married to um, Monica Bellucci. Yeah, good work. Good on him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you'd want to you'd want to make that last, wouldn't you? Yeah, good work, my friend. Yeah, yeah good job. So, um, you know what, Zelda? Why not? Twenty-five-year-old Monica Bellucci. Boom, casted. <laughs> it's done. It's done. But you know, give him more to do. Obviously. Yeah, and I guess like more like a blonde wig or something. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, well, honestly though, it, it wouldn't be hard to cast just anyone really pretty. Because again, yeah, like not not. Not a very dimensional character in these stories yet. No, she doesn't have a whole lot to do. Yeah, she? almost no. kind of like Hawkman. I mean, that's the the only other thing is anyone who would play Hawkman would have to play somebody who's pissed off, angry, heroic, and then also can be kind of catatonic. Yeah. Which I mean, you know, <laughs> probably wouldn't be the hardest. No. But uh, just to sell it convincingly and like you know make it um, an interesting performance, that would be nice. But you yeah. can probably get through without, uh, you know, just somebody kind of like Keanu Reeves just kind of standing there going, oh, Baron Meliadis, I am yeah. catatonic, <laughs> you know, whatever. Well, on on the subject of Keanu Reeves, and it's a shame, but if you look up a, p- a picture of Keanu Reeves in Much Ado About Nothing, he looks like the perfect Meliadis, but you would never trust him to act like the perfect Meliadis. No. I, but looks-wise, trust me, <laughs> look up a photograph of him in Much Ado yeah. About Nothing. Okay. Black le- black leather pants, black blouse shirt. He looks the business. Yeah. Anyway, we've done our... We used to call this Lord Shark's Ostentatious Couch. That's right. Where we, where we would uh, we'd do some casting, but I think it's... I, th- I don't think we've even mentioned that since about episode 7 or 8. So we've just returned for the first time in 30-odd episodes to Lord Shark's ostentatious couch to cast some Hawkbone. So, <laughs> listeners, give us your uh, your favourite casting options for the, the key players in the Mad God's Amulet. But yeah. on that, I think it's time probably to leave Derry and Tom's so they can clean up our teacups. But thanks once again, Dave. Always great to have you in Derry and Tom's to look at this stuff. And uh, I look forward to selecting our next option. Mm, we'll have to mm. talk about that, won't we? Mm. Yeah. By the rune staff, maybe it'll be <laughs> part three. Who knows? Well, if you want to continue with Sword of the Dawn, or if you want to go for something else, you know what? We'll have a conversation, and we'll 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 pick something. Sounds good. Cool, man. Thanks again. Absolutely happy to be here anytime. <laughs> Massive thanks to Dave for joining me once again in Derry and Tom's. It's always a pleasure when he stops by. Be sure to check out his Bandcamp page, Sonus Rocks at Bandcamp.com. I will link to it in the show notes. And follow him on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're in California, you're lucky enough that Sonus is also now playing live gigs and rocking the streets. So get down there and bug out. But before we go, thanks as ever to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Piconti, Sebastian Weetabix, Tim Cardos, and Dave Dempster, a.k.a. the Tentacled Whisperer of Secrets. 
and particular thanks to Dave for the special delivery, a fantastic Kirith Ungol poster featuring the Pale Prince himself from the pens of artist Megan LeMay. A really, really lovely surprise, Dave. Thanks ever so much. We got that on our return from our jollies in Wales, and I can't wait to get it to the framers. And thanks to our chaos engineers. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Fred Keish, Jim Kirkland, John Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Simon Perrins, and Tony Malazzo, and to our Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Olden, and Jason Connolly, and finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Joe Monty, Clarky the Cruel, Andy Darby, Gareth Wilson, Imria, we'll be talking to Imria on the next show, Janie Stim, Paul Hillary, Liam Jay, Miles Riedelbato, Mortmain, Neil Burton, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, the OG patron, Norman Beresford, and last but never least, Robert McMillan. Although this month it's not last, because we do have a new patron demon, Jay Ricer. You'll have to tell me if I pronounced that wrong, Jay. But Jay dropped me a line to tell us how he got into Moorcock. And he said, I believe the year was 1982, and a boy a few years older than myself learned that I was interested in Dungeons and Dragons. At the time I was attending a private Christian school, and whatever after-school function we were involved in wasn't holding our attention. We were outside and the sun had fallen. The older boy handed me a crisp copy of The Weird of the White Wolf. I went home that evening and read the first half of the book. An unknown alien feeling, and still to this day I can sense it, invaded me. It changed me, and that cover, that orgasmic pose that spoke, but I didn't have the tongue to understand. Moorcock's words in comparison to C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien contained something forbidden. I had become an acolyte, unbeknownst to myself at that time. The City in the Autumn Stars, or The War Hand on the World's Pain, are my favourite Moorcock stories. Elric at the End of Time never ought to have been published. I suppose I fall into whatever is meant by weird as my genre of choice. Well, you're in good company, Jay, and thanks for your support. Jay's also a gamer, and we've been having a great back and forth regarding gaming options and suggestions, and Jay has recommended Blood Red Sands, Iron Swan, and the free-to-download RPG Lobo Blanco 2nd Edition. So, gamer listeners, check those out. And at some point we will be following up with part 6 of our gaming run and probably take a panel approach, so lots to explore. Right, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins@outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. You can listen to Breakfast in the Ruins radio via the internet, most easily via Radio Garden. We have our Patreon page too, there are a few extra odds and sods on there. And also, I'm aware that some of our podcasting friends that use Anchor FM have lost their call-in feature, so they're having to do it manually. And it made me think, if folks want to record comments and conversations for inclusion, much like we've done with previous Christmas-struck birthday episodes, then by all means, send us an MP3 via email. And if there's a greater appetite down the line, we can look at ways to accommodate that in a more technical fashion, perhaps. And that's a strong perhaps, because I'm not very technical. 
But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.